It was a few years ago, Jamie and I actually got to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. Uh, it was pretty great. We've been looking forward to it, and so we planned for a while, and we got to spend a little bit of time in Europe, which was awesome. By the way, I think I got married in the greatest year ever to get married. You know how some husbands stumble when they get asked how long they've been married? Wife is always correcting them. Eight years. Oh, it's been 10, honey. You know, it's like that. That never happens to me because I got married in the year 2000. Right? I never have to think about how long I've been married. I just love it. So, anyways, we were celebrating our 20th, and in Europe, almost everything we saw was just, it took our breath away. Um, we even went to this city, and I didn't know this going into the city, they called it the cat capital of the world. There's cats everywhere. The city was called hell. I'm just kidding. It wasn't called that, but I was like, this might be close to what it's like. I don't know, Lord. But... Everything we saw, we, we just, we absolutely loved. But there was one thing in almost every city we, we went into that just messed me up. It messed me up. And what happened was almost every city we went into, I love history. So for three to five euro, you could enter these historic churches and just kind of see them. And it was beautiful. And, you know, they, they were so big and majestic. And they housed thousands of people. Almost all of them had a not all of them, but a lot of them had these towers you could get up to, and you can climb in these towers and see the, the city. It was kind of a cool view. Here's a picture of Jamie and I in one of those towers, just kind of looking out over the city. It was so beautiful, and we're all smiling in the picture. But afterwards, that smile, I would tell you, my heart started to break. Because what I began to think about was these buildings that were churches 300, you know, 400, 500 years ago, that were reaching thousands of people in their cities for Jesus. The only thing they're used for today is for tourists like me to pay five euro to get a good view. They're relics, they're empty walls, they're no longer functioning as places to gather people as a church. And it just messed me up because I began to think about the people three to 500 years ago that gave financially and served faithfully and just were so into building this church to reach their city, which they were doing at one point vibrantly. And now it's just a relic. And I thought to myself, God, what's to say that will never happen at CCV? You're thinking like, there's no way that could happen here. And we think that because right now, man, we are just a vibrant church reaching people for Jesus like I've never seen before. I mean, do, do you sense what God's doing in our church right now? Anybody else sense it besides me? I mean, if you need a little bit of like, if you need a little bit of motivation or just a little inspiration just to see what God's doing in our church. And I don't even know how to explain this. I can't, and I'm glad I can't explain it because God's moving. This is the number of people that have given their lives to Jesus and been baptized just this year to date, and the year's not even over. It's 5,569 people. That is a revival. But I started thinking, God, what, what if three to 400 to 500 years from now, people are walking by the campus you're at right now, and the only thing they're doing, the only reason that building's there is for someone to pay five bucks to come in and tour a relic that used to be a church. I broke my heart. I thought to myself, what causes a church to die? And I'll tell you what causes a church to die. A church dies when Christians start to conform to the culture around them. 
That's what causes a church to die. The, the risk throughout history, if you look at church history, is that Christians start to blend in with the culture around them. And if you blend in with the culture around them, you're not a contrast. Who needs the church? You're just like everyone else in the world. The church is irrelevant and it dies. And that's why Paul, writing in Romans chapter 12, he says this in verse two, do not what? Conform. Don't you dare conform to the patterns of the world you see around you. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter five. He said, you, Christians, you're the light of the world. You ever seen a dark room and a light conform to the darkness? The darker the room, the more the light contrasts it. And so Jesus goes on to say this. He says, you're the light of the world, so let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If a church dies when it starts to conform to the culture around it, a church will thrive. A church thrives when Christians live in contrast to the culture around them. You, me, our church was designed by God to be a contrast, not to conform. So what I wanna do for the next three weeks is I'll, I wanna talk to you leading up to Christmas about three ways that we have to be a contrast to the culture around us. Each week's gonna be different, but this week I'm gonna talk about something I am crazy passionate about because I think Jesus is crazy passionate about this. In fact, this topic is actually what I did my kind of final thesis in Bible college about the last year of Bible college. I'm just crazy passionate about it, and I wanna talk to you about the importance of a church having unity. I put it this way. As the world gets more divided, the church must stand in contrast, united. Let me ask you, how many of you would say right now in our country, you're seeing more division than any time that you've ever seen in your lifetime? Anybody else feel that? Man, the division is so heartbreaking, and it's everywhere. What, what, we call ourselves the United States of America, and we're quickly becoming the divided states of America. Because our pledge says we're one nation under God. We're quickly ignoring God and placing ourselves anywhere but where God wants us to go. In fact, if you feel the division, uh, what you feel, the stats back up. In fact, the Washington Post recently reported, according to the prevailing national narrative, American unity is at or near an all-time low. Time Magazine put it this way, there's no advanced industrial democracy in the world more politically divided or politically dysfunctional than the United States. Wow. And then just to add on to that, NBC News reporting about our division said this, we're a country on fire. New poll finds America is polarized. Now that's where we are today and you feel it. Does anybody looking into next year think that the division's gonna get any better? Well, why not? I mean, what's gonna happen next year? Oh, I get it, the summer, Olympic, summer Olympics are gonna be pretty tough, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, you know that next year could be and likely may be the most divisive year in our lifetime. It could be that way as a country. Now, 
I don't have the influence to change all the division in our country. And there will always be a level of division in our country, and there always has been, by the way. What I do have influence over, and some influence over, is our church. And I'm going to appeal to you today in the same way Jesus did, and the same way the Apostle Paul did, to keep unity on the forefront of our church. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He said, I appeal to you. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Watch this. Let there be no divisions. How many divisions, Paul? None. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now remember the word purpose. We're going to come back to that. What Paul is saying is he says, I don't want to divide a church. And he calls on the authority of Jesus, which we'll see in just a minute. But the word Paul uses for divisions in the church is this Greek word, it's schisma. It's where we get the English word schism or fracture or divide. And what you know intuitively it just in your life, is something can be so strong, like incredibly strong, and you put one crack in it, and it starts to lose all of its strength. Silly example, your windshield. You know, sometimes you get just a little ding in your windshield, look, it's a little, little crack, a pebble hits it, and you're going through the car wash, and the guy's like, oh, we got to fix that. I'll fix it right now for you. Your insurance will pay for it. And you're like, dude, you're a little pushy, man. You ever felt that before? But your insurance will pay for it. You know why? Your insurance company knows that if they don't fix that small crack, it can destroy the whole windshield. And the exact same principle is true about the church. Listen, when the church is divided, it's weak and it's destructible. Some of you have been a part of a church like that, haven't you? Like some of you are part of a church and, and in that church there was so much division and infighting and power grabs and arguing about all sorts of stupid things. And you know about that church. That church was divided, it was destructible, it started dying and it may not even exist today. But the exact opposite is true. When the church is united, it's unstoppable. Which means the church is only as strong as it is united. I think a diamond is a really good example. Did you know a diamond, which is made up of carbon, did you know a diamond is arguably the most strong substance in the world? What makes a diamond so strong? It's because when you look under a microscope, it is the most integrated and the most united. That's what gives it its strength. It's why it can drill through things that you could never drill through or any other substance might just fall apart. But you take a diamond and you put a crack in it and it begins to lose its strength. And this is why Jesus is so passionate about unity in the bride of Christ or the church. He demands unity. He wants it. He commands it. In fact, when the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, let me just see, let me show you the authority he appeals by. Let me remind you. He says this. Paul says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of who? By the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul appeal to Jesus' authority? Because what Paul knew is that earlier Jesus had taught about unity. In fact, if you open up to John chapter 17, 
In John chapter 17, it's recorded the longest prayer by Jesus in Scripture. And it's, it's a prayer that he prays before the day he's going to be crucified. So this is the day before, and Jesus prays the longest prayer we have recorded. You're like, what would Jesus pray a really long prayer about? I mean, strength or courage or don't be anxious. You know what Jesus prays for? Unity. And what's amazing to me about this passage, if you read through it, is Jesus doesn't just pray for the unity of his disciples and the church that his disciples would start that right after he dies. He has the foresight to pray for us. Watch this. Starting in verse 20, it says, Jesus says, my prayer, he's praying to God, is not for them alone. In other words, my disciples and the church, they're going to start right now. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, when I think about this, it actually gets me a little emotional. Because I think Jesus had the foresight the day before he died to pray a prayer for us. Like, personalize it. Jesus had the foresight to go, thousands of years from now, there'll be a church in Phoenix, Arizona called CCV. And God, I want to pray for them. And what's he pray for us? He prays this, starting in verse 21. He says that all of them will be one. Father, as you and I are one, I want my church to be one. And he goes on to say this, that they may be brought to complete unity. You're like, Jesus, why is that such a big deal that that's the last thing you want to pray before you're going to be crucified? Jesus answers. He says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Here's what Jesus is saying. If the church isn't unified, the world will miss the love of Jesus. That's what's at stake. And it makes sense, right? I mean, have you ever been around a family that is marked by division and fighting and arguing? You want to be around them? I mean, I don't even like being around my family when they're fighting and divided, right? You're thinking like, you're a pastor. Like, your your family probably doesn't have to deal with any, like, division or... Are you kidding me? We have to fight for unity just like every other family out there. Because division just seeps in, right? But we do know some families that there's a culture of division. Do you know what I mean? It's not like there's not just a little bit of division. or Every, every, every family kind of argues every once in a while. You ever been around a family that it's their culture? All they do is argue and fight with each other. And then when they're not together, all they do is gossip behind each other's backs about each other. Now let's say, you, you all know a family like that. Let's say that family came to you and said, we want you to be a part of our family. You would run so fast in the opposite direction, it wouldn't be funny, right? I would too. The church is the family of God. That is how we are described. This family represents the name of Jesus. And when we are divided, we make a mockery of the name of Jesus. Why would anyone want to be a part of a place that's divided, let alone explore who Jesus is? When Jesus is telling us his prayer in John 17, this is what he's trying to tell us, and this is the main idea for today. For Jesus to be glorified, his church must be unified. The name of Jesus 
and it being glorified, which means being lifted up, the name of Jesus being lifted up in our midst depends on our unity as a church. And the tendency, as our world gets more divided, the tendency is for that division out in the world to seep into the church and to pull the church away from proclaiming exactly who Jesus is to a world that desperately needs him. And that's where we're at as a country is we as a church have to not let the division in our country seep into the church to divide us. And it begs the question, how do we stay united? And I want to tell you two things today that we have to focus on to stay united as a church. These are the same two things that you would have to focus on to stay united in your marriage, in your business, everywhere. Here's number one. We have to unite and focus on a common enemy. We have a common enemy. Who's our common enemy? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood. In other words, we don't have a flesh and blood enemy. In other words, your primary enemy, your common enemy, isn't another person, another Christian, another church down the road. Who is it? No, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul's using language to tell us who's our one enemy. It's Satan and Satan alone. Not other Christians that don't see things the way we see things. They don't think exactly the way we think. They don't vote the way we think. It's not the church down the street that still preaches Jesus but does things differently than we do. That's not our enemy. That's why we will stay united as a church and unite with any church that preaches Jesus. And even if they do things a little bit differently, we don't. We don't. Just, just curious, how many of you have ever heard somebody speak negatively about our church, CCV. Now, I meet a lot of people and I'm out about, I love people, and I won't tell people I'm a pastor most times. You know, and there's people that have no idea who I am, and they'll meet me, and somehow in the conversation it'll come up, they'll be like, well, do you go to church? I'm like, yeah, I go to this church called CCV, and they'll be like, ooh. <laughs> I've heard things about that church. I've heard they don't really teach the Bible. Oh, really? Oh, step outside. No, I didn't say that. I don't say that. I said, really? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I heard they're all about the money. Huh. Someone I'll say, like, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty involved there. And, uh, <laughs> like, maybe you should just come and check it out for yourself. We teach God's word every single weekend. We don't even pass an offering. What are you talking about? It's like, there's so many people that say negative things about other churches. Now, all of our campuses just play along. If you, just show of hands, every campus. If you've heard someone talk negatively about our church, just raise your hand right now. Raise your hand. Okay, now my feelings are hurt. Okay, it's like I see hands everywhere. It's everywhere. Actually, it's not, and I'll tell you why. As a leader, I understand what comes with leading a growing church that's taking ground for Jesus. And it's the same in your business, it's the same in any organization. When you're growing and taking ground, people are gonna take pot shots from all sorts of angles. That comes with the territory, and if you can't accept that, you probably are not fit for leadership. It's okay sometimes that, that we're gonna take some pot shots. Let me tell you what's not okay. If you ever, from this platform, hear me speak negatively about another church that preaches Jesus, you have every right to call me on it. And my commitment to you 
is that we will be a church that lifts up the name of Jesus and especially supporting other churches in our city and around our world that are preaching the name of Jesus too because we have to stay united. Amen? In fact, this, this is why we're a non-denominational church. We'll get behind any church, any denomination that preaches the name of Jesus. Now listen, if they're preaching heresy and they're like, Jesus didn't die from the die and rise again, okay, we're out. But any preach, church that preaches Jesus, like we want to be unified with you. That's why, if you remember back in 2019, if you were here, we took an offering around Christmas called More Than Us, and we raised as a church, get this, over $7 million that we gave away to about 30 churches in the valley that we thought could grow because we want to see every church grow. That's what we want to do. In fact, we, we bought a Hispanic church in town, a, a building for over a million dollars, and they're exploding right now, and we are cheering them on. And they don't do things exactly like we do, and we don't care. We're preaching the name of Jesus. That's what we want. So we're going to fight for unity. Who's our common enemy? Satan. Not another church, not Christians that don't see things exactly the way we say th see things. I think it breaks God's heart when his church isn't unified. And it's why Jesus spoke so powerfully of telling his church, you fight for unity. And as I was writing this message, I just felt compelled to kind of pause and I just want to speak to someone today about the unity in your marriage. The same principle applies, that your marriage is only as strong as it is unified. And I'll just tell you very honestly, the most difficult seasons of marriage that Jamie and I have ever had are when we got divided over something that we should have been unified on. So many things, I mean, from parenting to kind of the dating world with our kids to stupid things like, what show are we watching tonight? You know, it's like so dumb. And what we forget is that we sometimes think our spouse is the enemy and we forget who our real enemy is. Listen, in your marriage, you have an enemy who is out to kill, steal, and destroy your marriage. And if you let him seep in to divide you, you will see your marriage fall apart, which means you have to fight with everything in you to get over your pride and a humility Bend towards each other so you fight for unity. I say in marriage, a unified decision is way better than one of you getting your way. You fight for unity. And I just want to say that because that's why someone's here today, is for that very thing. But you, you have a common enemy. It's not your spouse. It's not someone else. It's Satan himself. So we have to focus on a common enemy. But the second thing we have to do is not just a common enemy. We have to focus on a common purpose. A common purpose that's what unifies people. And I want to say this. Unity does not mean uniformity or sameness. Everybody thinking the same. Everybody believing the exact same thing. I mean, if that was unity, it's a mirage. You would never have it. You ever thought exactly like your spouse on every issue? That's a no. Okay? I mean, never. It's like, and, and it won't happen in the church. It won't happen anywhere. Think about a football team. When a football team takes the field... You got wide receivers, linemen, tight end, the running back, the QB. Everybody has a different idea sometimes about what they think they should be doing, what play they should be running, who should be getting the ball, like what. I mean, you, you understand how, how divided a team could get? What unites a team? A common goal line. We're going towards that goal, and the more you focus on the goal line, all the, 
the differences start to fade because you have a common purpose. That's what unites you. What is the common purpose in the church? When Jesus prays for unity for us in John chapter 17, he says this in verse 4. He says, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus had a purpose, and when he died, he said, I met my purpose. It was to seek and save the lost, to let people know who I am, to seek and save the lost. And when Jesus left this earth, in Matthew chapter 28, he gave us, the church, the exact same purpose. It's called the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus says this. He's just getting ready to, he's risen again. He gave the final battle plans to his church. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he says this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the Great Commission. And at CCV, we like to say Jesus' last command is our first priority. So what's our purpose as a church that we can stay united around? It's our mission statement based on the Great Commission. And here's our mission statement. We exist at CCV to win people to Christ, to train believers to become disciples, and then to send disciples to go impact the world. And we got to keep winning more people so we can train more people to send more people. That's how we reach our city. That's how we impact our world. And that's why our vision statement based on that mission is we exist, right? Our vision is to reach the entire valley for Christ. Because the more people we reach in our valley, to reach our valley, we can win more, train more, and send more. That's our common purpose. And that's what we unite around. That's our goal line. Our goal line is not everyone in our church believing the exact same thing on every single issue. Whether it's you know, something about the church or theologically, that's not our goal line. Our goal line is our vision and our mission statement. And that's why at CCV we've had a saying since the church started that has kept us unified. And here's our saying, and I think you should write this down. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. What does that mean? We hold to this. What it means is we're going to have a few essential beliefs as a church that we absolutely say we have to have unity on. And those beliefs are based on God's word, not someone else's opinion like me or another pastor, but they're the things that are ultra clear in God's word about who Jesus is, that he came as God's son to die for us. He rose again on the third day. And because of his resurrection power and his blood he shed for us, we can have salvation through Jesus in the name of Jesus alone. Those are our essentials and our beliefs based on God's word. But you know how many non-essential beliefs there are? What's a non-essential belief? It's a belief that we can disagree on and we can still both go to heaven. It doesn't determine your eternal destination, this, this kind of belief. It's a non-essential. And in non-essentials, we have to have liberty. Like we, we can't be like, oh, you have to believe exactly the way I believe. No, if it doesn't matter if we go to heaven, like be careful holding on to those so tightly and making everyone else believe exactly what you believe. I mean, what would be some examples of non-essentials? I mean, there's so many of them. The style of music we, we, we use. I mean, I'm so proud of our church, by the way. There's so many old people in our church, older, that... <laughs> I, I kind of caught myself there. I mean, older, I mean, more mature, you know. <laughs> Who they put up with the music here, because they've said this. I'll put up with anything for a church to reach my kids and grandkids. We should give them a applause right now. That's amazing. Like, thank you. 
But it's a non-essential, the style of music we play, the programs we offer as a church, right? I mean, a non-essential would be your political affiliation, whether you think you should watch a rated R movie or not, the color of the carpet or our buildings. I mean, there's so many non-essentials. There's so many theological non-essentials. What what do you believe about speaking in tongues? What do you believe about the end times? Are you pre-millennial, post-millennial? Completely non-essential. doesn't matter what you believe, whether you go to heaven or not. Well, I want to be really, I'm going to be really strong in my beliefs. That's fine. It's a non-essential then. Well, was the earth created in seven literal days? Non-essential. Can I get baptized in a Speedo? <laughs> you can. I mean, we'll probably ask you to cover up just a little bit, but I mean, whether you do or not, doesn't matter, right? You can get baptized whatever you want. It's a non-essential belief. Paul said this, talking about the non-essentials. He said this, Romans chapter 14, accept the one whose faith is weak. Now he's talking about, there's, there's some people that have certain beliefs that really bother you because they don't see it the way you do. He says, I want you to accept the one whose, whose faith seems weak to you without quarreling over disputable matters. There's a bunch of disputable matters in the church that we're not going to divide over and argue over. So you can have a really strong belief on something, but don't get all jacked up about it. Don't get all quarrelsome about it. You're, you'll divide the church over a non-essential issue. Now, think about churches you know that have divided. Do most churches divide over essentials or non-essentials? Almost always non-essentials. And it breaks the heart of God. Now, some churches divide over essentials. There's some of that that happens, but a majority of church history, it's all been about the non-essentials, and it's just so wrong, which is why the last part of that statement that we hold to is in the, in, in the essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, and say out loud the bold. Say it loud with me. In all things love. Say it one more time loud. In all things love. Jesus said this. John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. Why? By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if and only if you love one another. Jesus is saying that if we as Christians can't learn to love people that see things differently than us, this world will miss the love of Jesus. And that should pierce your heart if you're kind of a little bit of a divisive person. It does me, because I have strong opinions about a lot of things. A recent Barna poll, they asked, they asked non-Christians this. They said, hey, tell us, you're not a Christian. Tell us what would make you more interested in exploring Christianity. And one of the top three responses for people that aren't Christians at all that said, I, I would be interested in exploring Christianity more, is they said, if I saw the church more united. Which means when we're not united, we degrade the name of Jesus. I like how Thomas Manton said it. He said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. You know what I think? When I look at the world today, I think a lot of people outside the church are sick and tired of hearing about the love of Jesus. They hear us say, oh, Jesus loves you. He'd accept you. Come on in. And then they come on in and they realize we put all these conditions on our love for them. 
They're like, I'm sick and tired of hearing about the love of Jesus. I want to see the love of Jesus from the church. Amen? That's what they want to see from us. Just show me love. Stop telling me about it. Like, show me that it's real. Which means for Jesus to be glorified, church, we have to be unified. Every year at CCB, I have tried to pick a word for our staff and our church that's going to guide us into the next year. And I've just tried to be really visionary about this next year, knowing that I believe this next year may be one of the most divisive years in, in our country's recent history, at least in our, our, our lifetime. And our word for the year, I want to tell you what it is, it's the word united. That when this world gets crazy divisive next year, we're not going to let that divisiveness seep into the church to pull us away from the mission of God. We will say this, we'll stay united around the person and the focus of Jesus. We have a common enemy, his name's Satan, and we have a common purpose, which is Jesus, to win, train, and send and reach this valley for him. And I'm just gonna ask you as a church to join me in being united next year. You'd fight for unity. Let me tell you what's gonna happen next year. So many people around us are gonna put all their energy and focus into who we elect in the next election. And listen, as your pastor, I'm gonna tell you this boldly, you vote. Don't you dare as a Christian not vote in our democratic country that we love so much, you vote. You get out and vote, and you vote your values. You do it. But I'm going to say this boldly, and please hear this in the spirit in which I mean it. What happens in God's house is more important than what happens in the White House. It is. And I can say that boldly because of this. Because Jesus is the only person that can change our country. He is the only one. Politics is downstream from culture. You want to change culture? You have to have people accept Jesus, give their life to Jesus, and let him transform their life, and then let Jesus transform every other part of their life. So we have to keep our focus on Jesus. And I'm just asking you to, like, fight with me for that, for the unity of our church. And here's why. We're seeing a revival this year. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I I can't describe it, and I don't want to, because God's up to something bigger than we could ever imagine or ask. To see the number of people baptized this year, to see the, the growth in our church. I think this may be one of the most visionary messages I will teach you this year, by far. Because I'm looking into next year, and I'm realizing that God wants to continue this revival. He wants to continue seeing his church grow. It's his greatest desire, but we have an enemy next year that will use division to try to pull us away. And we have to decide now, before it gets too divisive next year, that I'll be a person and we'll be a church that fights for unity. Are you with me on that mission? Are you with me? Listen, I know you want to be, and I really pray you do, but I'm going to ask you to wrestle with the question with me, and I'm going to wrestle with the same question too, and here it is. What's the one thing God needs me to do today to contribute to the unity of our church tomorrow? Like you get ask personally, like what do I need to do to contribute to the unity of our church? And it, it could be as something as simple as 
you have like kind of a non-essential belief that you're super passionate about and it's, it's causing division maybe in the church or maybe in your family or with you know, a spouse or your kids. And you need to realize that's a non-essential. Have some liberty, have some love. It, it could be for some of you today, your big takeaway is you have disunity in your marriage and you know it. And listen, it's not just destroying your marriage or your relationship, it's destroying your witness to the people around you. Some of you have put a person or a pastor or a politician over Jesus. Paul wrote about this. He said, don't you ever take someone and put them over Jesus. Jesus is our focus and our purpose and our center, and he is the person that can change anyone and everyone. So put your focus on him. I don't know where God's gonna call you to try to protect the unity of our church, but I'm gonna ask you to be in on being unified this next year. Amen? Let me, let me, let me pray for us and, and we'll close. God, I, I thank you right now that we've been a church that's been unified for over 40 years. Not perfectly, and we sure have had our issues, but man, I just thank you that you've really just seen with your grace and your love for us to really keep our focus on the essentials that in non-essentials we have liberty and God in all things that we love each other, even when we don't see things exactly the same way. And God, there's some of us that we've just, if we're, if we're sitting here today, maybe we're just honest that we've been a little divisive with another Christian, maybe we've spoken behind their back or a pastor or about our church or another church down the road. God, would you just convict us today to keep the unity of your church front and center so that your name can continue to be glorified in our midst. And Father, if we would do that this next year, as our nation gets more divided, the church can stand in contrast, lifting up the name of Jesus and transforming people's lives like never before. That's what we want. That's our prayer. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. And we all said, amen, amen. Hey, CCV, I'm so proud to be, of a church, be a part of a church with you like this that wants to fight for unity. And hey, on your way out, make sure you grab some Christmas invite cards it's a great way to keep spreading the name of Jesus. Bring someone with you to Christmas. We have a great service planned. We'll see you next week as we continue contrast. Until then, go out and have a great week.